Thank you, Jim. Back when radio was in its heyday, there was a popular uh, game show called Truth or Consequences. I think there's a television. It's a, it's on. It's they've got a television uh, version of that radio show. And I can tell by the smiles on some of your faces that you can remember and identify the truth or consequences show was on radio. You know you've just dated yourself as well as me. And the format of that radio show was that if you tell the truth, that is if you give the right answer, you got rewarded. But if you gave the wrong answer, sometimes it was rigged even, if you gave the wrong answer, if you didn't tell the truth, you suffered the consequences, which was usually some stunt that they played on you or, or you had to participate in. It was a popular uh, show on radio. I think its popularity was due to some degree because it was a kind of a reenactment of life. It was based upon the kind of a rationale, the logical rationale that if you did right, you got rewarded. And if you did wrong, you suffered the consequences. That seems logical, doesn't it? That if you did told the truth, you got, you got rewarded for it. If you, told, if you didn't tell the truth, if you gave the wrong answer, you had to suffer the consequence. That's a logical rationale. For example, if you're driving your automobile 60 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone, I don't know anybody would do that, but if you did and you got ticketed for it, you'd be, getting, you'd be suffering the consequences for breaking the law, and that's logical and fair. Now, you might, when you see those red lights flashing behind you, you do just what I do. After that initial panic, you begin to think, what kind of an excuse can I give that get me off of this thing? But... Whatever you try, however you try to, you know, excuse yourself, you're just getting the consequences of breaking the law. But what if, what if you got a ticket for speeding, driving 30 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone? Have you ever gotten a ticket for speeding, for going 20 in a 30-mile zone? Well, now that's unfair. And you'd probably fight that all the way to the Supreme Court because you got unfair treatment. You got cheated, you know, because when you suffer the consequence of doing right, when you do everything that's right and you suffer consequences for it, that's unfair. We call it a gigantic ripoff, you know. That's a term that we use. Hey, this is a ripoff. I... I was doing right and I was done wrong. And that's unfair. But life is not always fair. Lowell in his classic, uh, The Present Crisis, talks about that. Listen to these words. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good our evil side, some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight, parts the goats upon the left hand and the sheep upon the right, 
and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and that light. And then he goes on to say later in that classic, careless seems the great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. For there are times in everybody's life when he does right and he suffers wrong for it. That's what 1 Peter, the first three chapters are about. I want you to flip to that, 1 Peter chapter th- chapters 1 through 3. And what this great apostle is dealing with in 1 Peter is suffering. And what he wants us to know is that there are many times when a person is going to suffer for wrong. He's going to suffer for wrong. I sat across the table from John Harrell, who's been coming to our uh, Friday noon luncheons. He's Judge Phillips Bailiff, a Roman Catholic who studied in the University of Cambridge, a brilliant young man, last Friday or two weeks ago, and he was telling me about this book that had been reviewed in Time magazine. You may have seen the review, written by this Jew. And the theme of the thesis of the book was dealing with the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And how do you justify the fact that good people suffer And how do you justify the fact that people who are right are done wrong if God is a just God and is in control? And the consensus of the book is that God is not in control or that He has limited control, that the universe has gotten out of hand and and God is helpless to do anything about it. And the Hebrew, the Jewish and Protestant world are hailing the book as one of the greatest pieces written in the last decade. How do you deal with the problem of evil and suffering when some are done wrong, when they really do right? That's what, Paul, that's what Peter's dealing with in the first three chapters. As a matter of fact, he says that when you react correctly to the wrong that's been done you, It brings great favor from God. Now look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Um, I don't like that word to you. Be submissive to your submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up unto sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God, for you have been called for this purpose. 
Now, put a little asterisk by this thought. God makes servants out of us through unjust circumstances. God makes servants out of us through unjust circumstances. It is through unjust circumstances permitted by God that He equips us for servanthood. And if you want to look at chapter 3, verse 17, Peter says, it is even better when you suffer unjustly. Now get this. It's better when you get a ticket for going 20 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone than it is to get a ticket going 40 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone. That don't make a bit of sense. That doesn't make a bit of sense to me. But God's ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are greater than ours. And one of the greatest tests that a servant ever has to endure is at this very point, how to do right when you've been done wrong. And there is a, there is a, a model for that in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So I want us to turn there and we get to our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You have a model for it. Doing right when you've been done wrong. Put a little asterisk by this thought also. The point of this whole message, and if you want to get this, then you can nod off for the rest. The point of this whole message that these words will teach us tonight is this. Doing what is right is not always rewarded with blessing. That comes as a shock to some of us. Doing what is right is not always rewarded with blessing. So chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 7, begins our model. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We have this, God has poured His choicest blessing into an old earthen pot that's imperfect and marred. God has placed the treasure of His ministry and His message in frail humanity in order that the surpassing greatness of it might be of God and not of men. Now here is a servant trying to do what is right. Here is a servant, and that's the a whole point of our messages in the last few weeks. What is involved in servanthood? Here is a man who is trying to serve God the best he can. What is his reward? He defines the rewards in the next four terms, beginning at verse 8. One, we are afflicted. Now that word means stressful. It means pressurized. It means vexed. You heard the old saying, he vexed me pressurized, stressful vexation. That's the first reward. Second, we are perplexed. That is confusion. It means without a way, without a resource. It means insecurity. It means uncertainty, even to the point of questioning God. 
Now here's a servant, and he's doing the best he can. He's doing everything that's right. What does it get him? Confusion. Without a way, without resources. Uncertainty and insecurity. He even comes to the place where he even wonders if God exists at all. What's the third reward? Persecution. The, the, the word means to set someone on the run. It means to be driven. Somebody gets on your case. That sound like anybody you know? I've been there a few times. And he says that the fourth reward we get for servanthood is in that word struck down. It means to be cast aside, to be hurled away. I call it rejection. And it's the very idea that comes when that big old seven-foot center takes the ball and slam dunks it through the hoop. That's just the idea involved. Or as I was watching football game, a guy went into the end zone with a football and he just kind of stood there and he's kind of reared back and he just whammed that ball down on the ground. It just bounced all over the whole stadium. I mean, there's this ball minding its own business, never did anything to him, you know, and he got spiked for it, you know. And that's what Paul, uh, Peter is, uh, what Paul is saying. You try to do what's right, and what happens? You get spiked for it, and you just bounce everywhere. You don't know what's going on. Now, turn to chapter 11, and we're going to get an illustration of what he's talking about. The consequences of servanthood. The rewards you get for doing right. Now, there's not a person here tonight who is a stranger to these feelings I'm about to describe. These are experiences that can be validated by every person in this auditorium, if not now, later. And if you're not careful, you'll get bitter. In chapter 11, Paul is under attack. His fellow Jews don't understand him. They've misunderstood him. They're saying he's not an apostle. He's a phony. He's, he question, they question his integrity and his authority. They are saying he doesn't deserve to be what he is. They are personally attacking him. And in verse 22, he asks some rhetorical questions. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Then he says something he never says again, never said before. I talk as an insane man. Now there are two reasons why he said that, perhaps. One is he's, he's, he's saying this, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fool for even boasting, <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm, I'm insane for even boasting. I have no reason to boast. Or he's saying... Uh, kind of uh, with tongue in cheek, are they servants? I'm insane if, 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 if I think they are. See. Are they servants? I more so. Look at verse 23. I more so. Now here's the moment of truth. Here's the Apostle Paul who comes to the place in, in his life and in dealing with the Corinthian Christians where he's, he's identifying his servanthood. And you would expect that what follows is this. Am I a servant more than they? That he would begin to list ways he has served the Lord. But he doesn't. Instead, when he comes to claim his servanthood, instead of listing all the ways he has served God, that's the way you and I do it. 
I did this and I did that and I had this place in church and I did that. Instead of listing all the ways he served God, he begins to list the consequences of servanthood. Now what does that say to you? Let me tell you what it says to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that we are comforted when we are afflicted in order that we might comfort others. I think Paul is saying the reason why I am a servant more than any of you are servants is this. I have suffered the consequences of servanthood. Let me tell you something. When you suffer the consequences of servanthood, Something happens inside of you that equips you and qualifies you for servanthood as nothing else will ever qualify you. When you suffer wrong for doing right and you respond to that correctly, God uses that to equip you for servanthood in a way that you would never be equipped any other way. Now remember the four ways, the four rewards he said that he received for serving God. Now look at the way he defines them here. In verse 23 he says, In far more labors, the word there means or term means in personal toil. It means doing that which is difficult. It means stress. Ah, you remember what he said there under afflictions and we define what that word means? It means stressful, pressurized, vexation. He said more labors, more personal toil, pressures and stress. Skip over to verse 27. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. It's hard for us to imagine that Paul lost in his sleep, but he did. For he says in verse 38, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. And I can just see him up at night pacing the floor under the pressure of that, under the pressure of the church. I've been there. I used to listen when I was a young man just had been called to preach. I used to listen to preachers talk about the fact that that pastoring a church was heartbreaking and that there were pressures that, that were just indescribable and, and uh, unbelievable. And I thought, you know, well, that guy, what, what's he talking about, you know? I thought he was just, I thought they were just uh, being spectacular, romanticizing. There is no pressure like it. There is no stress like it. There is nothing any more stressful, full of pressure than to try to serve God and to serve others. It'll keep you up at night, won't it? And then he said, imprisonments. Now, literally, Paul was put in prison, but there's so much more involved in this word. When we noticed it in B of the outline, it talked about confusion and insecurity and uncertainty. And if you want to look at verse 26, he uses the term in danger eight times. The only security that can be found is with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul must have come to those 
moments in his life when under the tremendous confusion and uncertainty of life itself in the ministry, he must have wondered, is there any help from God? There was a, a Jew, an unregenerate Jew by the name of Eli Beasel, who in teenage years saw the Holocaust of the extermination of the Jews. He's written a book entitled Night. I want you to listen to what someone said about him. Listen to this. Hang on to this. This is dynamite. Bezos saw all the Jews of his village band together in the ghettos stripped of their possessions and loaded into cattle cars where almost a third of them died. He saw his mother, a little sister, and all his family disappear into an oven fueled with human flesh. He also saw babies pitchforked, children hanged, weak men killed by fellow prisoners for a piece of bread. Ely himself, frequently battered by the ringing blows of truncheons, escaped death only by accident. The first night, Basil's train pulled up at Birkenbrow. Coils of ominous black smoke billowed from a massive oven, and for the first time in his life, he would smell the scent of burning humanity. He said, never, never shall I forget that night. Seven times cursed and seven times healed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of little children. The bodies I saw turn into rings of smoke beneath the silent blue sky. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of my desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things if I'm condemned to live as long as God Himself, never. And Francois Nayak, the Nobel Prize winner, wrote the foreword of his book. These are his words. It was then that I understood what had first drawn me to this young Israeli. That look as of Lazarus risen from the dead yet still in prison. 
Remember that. For him, Bezel's cry expressed an almost physical reality. God is dead. The God of love, of gentleness, of comfort, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has vanished forever beneath the gaze of this child. In the smoke of the human holocaust exacted by a race, the, more, the most voracious of idols. And how many pious Jews have experienced this death, this prison? On that horrible on that day horrible, even among those days of horror, when the child watched the hanging, yes, of another child who he said had the face of a sad angel, he heard someone behind him in the line groan, Where is God? Where is He? Where is He now? I've been there, haven't you? Where is He? Where is God? Where is He now? I've done the best I could. I've done everything that's right. And there is no way, there is no human resource. And I said, when I came to this series, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell it just like it is. I've been there, and so have you. And the reward I've received from serving God is a night of sleeplessness where I've even wondered if He existed at all, and I've called out, where is God? Where is He now? Haven't you? Then he said, there is persecution. Look at there in that next verse. He was beaten. Times without numbers, he said. And I've experienced, he said, the lash of the Jews of 39 stripes on my back. And he was stoned. Folks, this is God's best man crawling out from under these stones. This is not a criminal. This is not a man who's defied God. This is a man who's sold out to God, whose whole life was devoted to the service of God. And someone has said, to follow Paul across Europe is like following a wounded hare, all you have to do is follow the trail of blood. This is God's best man. This is not somebody who spent his life in defiance of God. This is a man who loves God, and this is the kind of reward he gets for service. And in verse 23 through 25, he comes to that last term that we found, the, the D term. He said, I saw the sun go down in no land. I saw the sun come up and no land. I saw the sun go down again and no land. And out there 
shipwrecked and alone. He lived in the jaws of death. This is God's best man. Margaret Clausen was not talking to missionaries when she wrote the words of this song. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to loneliness and longing, with heart a-hungering for loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one. So send I you to know my love alone. So send I you to leave your life's ambition to die a dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. It's not funny, is it? There's no such thing as cheap grace. To give your life to God is to give your life to God. Now, how do you deal with the consequences? Just two thoughts, suggestions, and then I'm through. One, you need to remember, you need to keep on remembering that nothing touches you that does not pass first through the hands of the Father. Nothing touches you that does not pass first through the hands of the loving God. Secondly, God uses everything that happens to me to perfect my servanthood. God uses everything that happens to me to perfect me for ministry. And somehow, we can find some comfort in that. Because when those heartaches come and that disappointment and you do your best whether it is as a parent 
or a teacher or just a servant of God and what you get in return is rejection confusion persecution there's some comfort in knowing that God will take that and will use it in my servanthood and yours would you pray with me Heavenly Father our hearts are sensitive to the fact tonight that we have labored under the assumption if we give our lives to God and serve Him, that we'll be rewarded with blessing. And we can't understand, we have not been able to cope and understand with the fact that we've done the best, we've done right. We've been rejected. And some have been on our case. Some have driven us. We've not felt security. we felt insecure, uncertainty, confusion. And God, help us to understand and to accept tonight the reality that often the reward of doing right of servanthood, the consequences is loneliness and heartache and rejection pain misunderstanding help us Lord to rest just in the assurance that we're in the center of your will that we've been called and that you love us Help us to find comfort and help in that. Because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now with heads still bowed, this is our invitation tonight. Someone asked recently, why do Baptists give invitations? Well, the message that God delivers is a message to decision. It's not for entertainment. It's not for knowledge only. It's for decision. We give opportunity to decide on the basis God's message to us to decide positively or negatively, whatever. Invitations are for people to publicly decide, to make public decision. We invite you to come then tonight deciding to give your life to Jesus Christ, to ask Him to be your Savior, confessing your need of Him and your sin, claiming His salvation, His free gift, or to place your life in service of ministry in the church, or to rededicate yourself to God.